We are continuing our sermon series on the benefits of salvation based on Psalm 103. And today we're just going to jump right into the reading of sacred scripture. So if you are willing and can, please stand for the reading of the word of God. We'll begin with an Old Testament reading to prepare the way for the gospel. Hear now the words of the living and true God. Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. The prophet says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away all tears from faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. A reading from the New Testament to deepen our understanding of the gospel. 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 10. Paul speaking. He says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested or come to make known through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And our third reading, a reading from the Holy Gospel, the good news of our salvation in Christ. Mark 10, 32 through 45 says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed him were afraid. And taking the twelve again, Jesus began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to him, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with... And with what... With the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thanks be to God for his word. Let us pray. Father God, we just read the sacred scriptures out loud, and you say that they testify to your Son. They are spirit and they are life. So Holy Spirit, take the word of God this morning and point us to the living word, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Work on our hearts today. Give us understanding. Illuminate our minds. Help us lay hold of the promises of the gospel and our Savior. We need you. We love you. Fix our eyes upon Christ in this moment together. Glorify the Son. In his precious name we pray, and the people of God said, you may be seated. So last week we explored the first benefit of salvation from Psalm 103. We talked about being cleansed by God, to be forgiven of sins, to be healed of our diseases, both moral and physical, that God cleanses the worshipers so they can come to him with good conscience. Uh, today's sermon is really the, the culmination of last week's themes. It's, it's the flip side to the same coin. We are exploring the ultimate problem of this thing called death. Because whenever you speak of sin, you must inevitably speak of death. It's the finished product of the sin curse. For as the apostle so famously put it, he said the wages or the earnings or the outcome of sin, you all know it, is death. Meaning death is the natural an ultimate result of sin against God. And sin is turning away from God, the source of life itself. For the Lord Almighty told Adam, the first man, he says, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But we know the story. The man did not listen. Therefore, sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. And throughout the rest of the entire Bible, church, specifically the Old Testament, death is almost always described in hostile and negative terms. It is the, the tragic fate that happens to us all. It's going to happen to all of us, the rich, the poor, the great, the weak. Death will happen to all of us. And so besides being called a curse, besides being called a curse, death is also called an enemy. It's called a pit a deep darkness, a house of the dead. Death is called agony. It's called forgetfulness. All these negative and pejorative terms are used to describe this thing called death that occurred in the garden that now inflicts all of mankind. But most tragically, death is described as being separated from God. Hear the words of the psalmist, Psalm 88. He says, My soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol, or the grave. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. Church, this, this death, this awful description we get throughout the whole Bible, this thing called death, this is the covering Isaiah spoke of that we read about, this covering that is cast over all people, this veil that is spread over all the nations. This is you. This is me. This is my children. This is your children. This is your grandchildren we're talking about. We all stand in the shadow of this thing called death. Oh, did I break it? Or was it so bad we had to stop? We good? 
Hello? shaking it and reverberating it. Y'all ruined my dramatic scripture readings. Y'all are in trouble. It's okay. Technical difficulties. But are we good to go? Let's just go. So we all stand in the shadow of this thing called death. It's in, in the days of our lives, we're just counting down towards this moment when you and I are going to stand at that last moment when your mortal life is going to end. You are going to breathe your last. And not to be scary sounding, but have you ever really thought about what that would be like, that moment when your body actually dies? What that's like to not breathe anymore? Like, it should scare us a little bit. The cessation of life should make us uncomfortable because it is a curse. It is an evil thing that happens to us. And if you've experienced the death of a loved one, you know firsthand how terrible this thing called death really is. And church, this thing called death is not in God's design. He didn't make things to die, but it's the result of the sin and death that came through the garden. But thanks be to God that from the beginning, he has had a plan not only to forgive our sins, but to also redeem us, literally pay a price in order to rescue us from the pit, this thing called death or the grave, all the hopelessness that the Old Testament describes as dying, God has had a plan to fix that. Amen. And this leads us to our first preaching point, the plan proclaimed from our Isaiah reading, because through the prophet Isaiah, God makes that bold promise. He says in verse 7, And he, the Lord God, will swallow up on this mountain, talking about Jerusalem, talking about Zion, that in this place, he's going to swallow up this covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations, and that God himself will swallow up death forever. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. If that doesn't get you excited already, then maybe you don't know how a serious danger this thing called death really is. If the promises of God destroying death do not get you fired up, then either you don't understand the depths of the gospel or you haven't experienced death yet. You haven't been around someone who died and to see what that tragedy feels like. But God says that in that day that he destroys this thing called death, he will wipe away all tears from all faces and he'll take the reproach of his people away. The Lord has spoken. Thousands of years ago, our God promised to destroy death itself. And think of how this really reveals the heart of God the Father. He hates this thing called death. He hates how it destroys his beautiful creation. He hates how it consumes human beings made in his image. It this thing called death, how he hates it, destroys families. It brings suffering. There's just so much hurt and pain involved in this thing called death. And so our God, the living God, Literally, his name describes what he is. He's the God of life. He's the living God. He purposed within himself to one day destroy this great evil once and for all. And in doing so, he would bring everlasting comfort. A day in which he would wipe away all tears. And that little phrase from Isaiah is picked up by John in the Revelation when he describes the new heavens and new earth. You guys, most of us are familiar with that. We read it a lot to remind ourselves of what this day will be like when death is totally abolished 
Revelation 21.4 says, He, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Amen and amen. Church, this is our God, the destroyer of death. But other than telling us he will do this one day, other than saying to the prophet he will destroy this thing called death, and it's going to be in Jerusalem on his holy mountain, he accomplishes that. He doesn't give us any more details, not really, not in that passage. And that's the question for the rest of the Old Testament. As you read through, like, how is God going to make good on his promises? How is our God, the living God, going to fix this thing called death? How is he going to fix this thing called destruction? How will he do that? And this is where our epistle reading comes into play. Our second preaching point, the plan explained. The plan explained. The apostle said that God's good purpose and grace, his plan to destroy sin and death, has now come to pass through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Church, it was God's good plan all along to send his only begotten Son in the world in order to destroy death through the gospel. And by doing so, the Son of God would bring life and immortality, everlasting life to all those who trust in him. Death would no longer rule over people. Children would no longer die in the womb. Wars would no longer rob mothers of their sons and their daughters. Old age would not be a threat to our very existence anymore. All of this would be realized through the gospel of Christ Jesus, our Lord, what we call the good news. But what is this gospel? What actually is the substance of the gospel? He tells us the gospel brings these things. It destroys death. But what is the gospel? And this leads us to our third preaching point, the plan realized from our reading of the gospel. And in this reading of the gospel, Jesus himself plainly tells us what the good news is going to be, what this good news is, how God will actually do this. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, the place God's going to destroy death. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. But after three days he will arise. Here, for the third time, Jesus predicts his death. And here Jesus tells us that God's plan to destroy death on his holy mountain in Jerusalem will be accomplished by his own humiliation and his own horrendous death, followed by him being raised back to life again. This is the gospel. It is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God. That is the good news. It's the gospel. And it is through this gospel of Jesus Christ that God deals with our problem of death in two very real ways. We have two problems that, of death God's got to deal with. First, God kills the root cause of death, our sins, and he kills our sins in the body of his son. As we read earlier, the wages of sin is death, so God's got to take care of the starting point of it. He's got to kill the root cause of death, which is sin itself. And so, we talked a little bit about it last week. By taking the core of the problem away, the rest of the body should heal, like an infection. And so by taking our sins away, Jesus essentially disqualifies us from the pit. He essentially disqualifies us from the grave. 
Because where there is no sin, there is no more death. If sin produces death and you take away this thing called sin, what remains? Life and salvation. And this is very similar what Jesus does to us by taking our sins away. This is similar to how Jesus, his own inability to stay dead. Because consider this reality. I've thought, how, I, how can you explain this? Our Lord Jesus lived a sinless life. He never had death working in him. And as we said, where there is no sin, there's no power of death. Therefore, death had no hold on Christ because of his perfections. This is what the Apostle Peter meant when he said, when he preached the gospel, he said, God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death on him because it was not possible, think about that, it's not possible for death to hold Jesus. Acts 2, 24. That's a crazy concept. He's saying God raised him up because it's impossible for our Jesus to stay dead. And it's impossible for Jesus to stay dead because he never sinned. There's no sin in this Jesus. He literally can't be in the place of death. He can't be in the pit. He can't be in the grave. No sin means no death, no grave, no hopeless pit for our Lord and Savior. And this is why God the Father could raise him with such ease. Because Jesus did not belong in death. He didn't belong in the grave. He had no sin in him. It'd be like demanding the sun not to rise at dawn. Jesus could not stay dead. It was impossible. And it would even be unrighteous of God to keep a sinless, innocent man in the place of the dead. That would be wrong for God to do that. Because if the wages of sin is death, and you've never earned death, how can you receive it then? It wouldn't be right. Therefore, God liberated Christ from the grave. He took him out. He raised him back from the dead. Likewise, when our sins are removed, we too are now disqualified from the pit. Because when your sins are purged by the Son of God, when your sins are forgiven by the Son of God, if we really believe that, if we really believe our sins are taken away in the Son of God, what remains then if there's no sin in us anymore? Life. We still die physically, just as Jesus was able to die, even though he was sinless. But this is because the Lord has not redeemed our bodies yet. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. He hasn't removed the sin from our flesh yet. But what is important here, I think, to understand is the idea of dying is no longer this mystery. We no longer have to worry of being separated from God or going down into the pit. Or when, like I said, all those negative terms used to describe death in the Old Testament, we don't have to worry about that anymore. There's no mystery anymore. There's no, like, what happens when I die type talk. We have the glory of the new covenant with its great and precious promises. And that's the fundamental difference, in my humble opinion, that when you notice, as you read the Old Testament, they don't talk about dying and going to heaven like that. There's not that type of talk in the Old Testament. It's just, we're all going to this dark and gloomy place, and some of us will have better deaths than others, but... They never really talk about death in a good way in the Old Testament. It's always this shadowy unknown, what's going to happen to us, but God is faithful talk. But when you get to the glory of the new covenant, when you get to the gospel, and you read the apostles, and you read all that stuff, you have a direct word from the living God, you shall live with him in glory upon your death. That is such an amazing truth. Our ancestors before Christ could not say that. You can as Christians now because Jesus lives and took your sin away. 
And now only life remains in the people of God. You, that's why we can go to funerals and have hope. That's why you can do this stuff and say, hey, grandma so-and-so is with Jesus. She's alive. That could not happen before the resurrection. We have hope of life after death because of Jesus Christ our Lord and taking our sins away. Because where there is no sin, there is only life and salvation. But God has a second problem to deal with. God has a second problem to deal with concerning death. Because if this thing called death is really to be destroyed, those who have died must be brought back into existence. They must come back to life and be safe from dying ever again. And this is where the doctrine of the resurrection is so critical to our understanding of Jesus. What it really means to come back from the dead. Because it's in Christ's resurrection that we see God fulfill the second problem of what happened to those who died and how are they going to come back to life and that type of question. Because when our Christ was raised from the dead, he was granted a new body, a new body that it was no longer subject to the curse of sin and death. Jesus was granted a body that could not age, could not get sick, be harmed, or die. Our King, our God King Jesus, is literally immortal. He can no longer be harmed by any powers in the universe he is supreme over everything, where death itself cannot even touch him anymore. And this is what the Apostle Paul calls a spiritual body. 1 Corinthians 15 and 16 deal a lot with this understanding of, like, what's the resurrection like? What's this Jesus like? What does that do for his people? So Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 42, talking about this resurrection body of Jesus. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, or something that can die. It is raised in imperishability. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. In church, this spiritual body that Jesus has, this body that doesn't get sick, can't be hurt, can never die, cannot be harmed anymore, where death itself has no power over Jesus. He says, to those who've trusted in my son, I'm going to give the same type of existence to you too. And that's our hope. Like, we're going to live again forever to never be harmed by death in these new spiritual bodies. And this promise will be fulfilled at the end when Christ returns. We will have a resurrection body just like our Savior in the same way he lives forever, not touched by death or harm anymore. That's going to be everyone who loves the Lord Jesus Christ and has confessed him. Paul tells us in the same chapter in Corinthians about when this will happen. He says, you're going to get this. You're going to get this new existence, this new spiritual body, this new way of life. You're going to come back from the dead at the last trumpet. For he says, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, meaning they can't die again. And we shall be changed for this perishable body, the thing that can die, must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Church, God will ultimately fulfill his promise to save us from the pit through the resurrection of the living and the dead. He will, at the last trumpet, at the last hour, whatever that looks like, death itself 
will no longer exist. Just life. So much so, if you read the Revelation in poetic language, God says that he takes death and Hades and he throws it into the lake of fire. That's a crazy idea, but the lake of fire is the ultimate judgment where the demonic and Satan goes. And God says he'll take death itself and cast it into that horrible lake of fire with the great enemy of our souls. Amen? God will kill death once and for all at the very end. But as Psalm 103 said, to do this, to forgive us our sins and guarantee a resurrection like his son, it cost God something. Because to redeem something means you have to pay a price. You have to pay a price to redeem something. Like if someone's a hostage and they want a ransom, that's what a redemption is. It's a ransom price. And our God paid the ultimate cost to save you and to save me and destroy this thing called death forever. He paid the ultimate price of his son. This is what Jesus meant at the end of our gospel reading. He said this, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom or a payment for many. This is the heart of our God. This is our Savior. He came to lay down his life as the payment for you to be free, for you to live. This, just like we talked to the kids this morning, this is the love of God that's eternal before us. His ultimate demonstration. He gave his Son to save his people from death and all of its misery. And if you are with us here today and you have not accepted this love of God by believing in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died so you can live, so you can be forgiven, so you can have eternal life with him and not be scared about what's going to happen to you when you die, if you haven't done that, then you are already dead man walking. You're already one foot in the grave. What, what good do you hope? The only thing you have to look forward to is the pit and all of its misery. There's no hope for you. All the negative terms that we talked about that death is, if you have not embraced the gospel of the Son of God, that's all you have to look forward to. Where death is agony, death is misery, death is a deep darkness, death is separation from God. That's you. That's your reality if you are not in the Son of God. But God is calling to you even now. For Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And the day is coming, Jesus said, and is now here where the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, those in the graves, and they will live. Jesus is calling you today, whether you're here, online, wherever this message is heard, wherever this gospel is preached, Jesus is calling you now to trust and obey him and believe in him. He's calling you now. Believe the gospel, repent, be baptized, embrace life in Jesus Christ. Truly live or know that the only thing good for you waiting in your death is agony, misery, separation from God. But for those of you who have claimed eternal life as your own, who have accepted Jesus as Lord, how do we show our thankfulness for this? God saved us from the pit. How do we show our thankfulness? How do we express that thankfulness? How does that impact the way you live? A couple key thoughts that came to me this week. Kind of like last week, I said, worship as those who have been cleansed. Come into worship with a good conscience. For those who have been redeemed from the pit, for those of you who know that God saved you from death, worship as those who have been redeemed from the pit. Worship as those who are truly alive. Consider this. A dead body does not worship. 
It lays there. It rots. It's disgusting. But you have life. Worship as those who really are truthfully alive. And consider this. We will, oh, we will praise, think about it, like a person with really bad illness or cancer or something. When they get that miracle treatment through a doctor, they will praise their doctor. They will laud him. They will say all these wonderful things to her. Like, you saved me. You saved me. You, you made it so I wouldn't die of cancer. How much more, when you and I come into the house of God, should the zeal of God fill our hearts to know that you were once dead. You were going to the pit. You had no hope. Your death was that. That was all that was waiting for you. And now you're really alive. How much more should we worship the father of life who gives life? So does that make sense? I just, it's like no other way to put it. Worship as those who are truthfully alive. Because this is how they worship in heaven. You read the revelation. Listen to how they worship in heaven. John says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, all of creation, all of creation is worshiping the Son of God saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Hallelujah. Praise our Savior. Worship as those who have been brought back from the dead. Worship like you are actually alive. And two, live as those who have been redeemed from the pit. Live as those who have been rescued from death. These bullet points, I encourage you to look through them in the week, but the scripture says that the fear of death no longer controls God's people. Normally that's a martyrdom idea that we don't have to be scared when we die, but think about even that's a bigger idea. Because death has no control on you, you can trust God with your normal day-to-day. -day. If you can trust God with your ultimate end over here, you can trust him in your money. You can trust him in your jobs, your kids, your sicknesses, everything. Trust God. If he's got your end secured, if he has life prepared for you, trust him as if you have that today. Trust as if you have that today. The fear of death will not control your decisions. You don't have to worry about not having enough in this life because God's already promised you everything. Two, sin shall not own you. Uh, that Romans reference talks about our baptism. Paul says things like, how are we who have dead to sin live any longer in it? Don't you know that those who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Meaning, like, think about your baptism. If you've died and are brought back like Jesus, if sin no longer owns you anymore, if the pit no longer controls you, then live as a Christian. That sounds so simple, but it's true. Live as a Christian. Keep God's commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Think about those things. I encourage you, read Romans 6. Sin does not own you. And if sin does own you, and you have deep habitual sin that you haven't overcome, you need to start doing some serious questions of your own heart, some good diagnostic questions. Am I living in perpetual sin because I have not been freed from the pit? Maybe that's true. Ask yourself those tough questions. And lastly, sacrificial love and service needs to be your norm. We're going to close on this thought. But after Jesus, in our gospel reading, tells them these dramatic statements that he's going to die again, James and John come to Jesus with these really uh, insensitive requests, in my opinion, about who will rule with Jesus, and everybody gets jealous. And, you know, Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't beat them down. He just, he corrects their thinking. He goes, no, no, I, I don't think you're understanding the gospel and the kingdom yet. It's not about who's in charge. It's about 
sacrificial love and service. Because look at me. I, the Son of God, have came to give my life for you. That's the ultimate expression of love of the gospel. That's the Father's love demonstrated. God loved so much he gave his Son. Be like that. And when you're free from the pit, that's supposed to be your norm. Sacrificial love. And sometimes this will be suffering. Sometimes our love for God will include suffering. Paul in his epistle reading says, suffer in the gospel. You're going to suffer. James and John, Jesus says, you will drink the, bat, the wine of, you know, be baptized like I am. You're going to be like that. You will suffer with me. Sometimes our sacrificial love for Jesus will take us to places of suffering. But not always. So as we come to a close, as the altar is open, are you thankful that you've been redeemed from the pit? Are you thankful for that? Or is this life that God's given you, you know, that phrase, have you taken it for granted? Do you take your eternal life for granted? Do you need to do some business with God? Or maybe you know somebody that has not believed the gospel, that, is still, that death still waits for them. Use this time to pray for them. Use this time to pray for your families. Have your children embraced the gospel? Have you been teaching your children the seriousness of life and death issues in the gospel? Use these time. Use this time. Pray to God. The altar will be open. Let's pray together first. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for going to the pit. Thank you that you destroyed it through your gospel. Thank you for your love for us. You laid down your life so we could live. Help us understand what it means to be people who have been saved from the pit. We ask this in Christ Jesus.